Hello, I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette. We appreciate you joining us. I am the host of New England's Breakfast with the Beatles in Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire. Joining me is my trusted uh, partner and co-host here. He teaches the Beatles class at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts for about 15 years. Beatles professor David Gallant. Hello, Mr. Gallant. Hello, Chachi. Your, uh, your trusted colleague. It makes us sound like Peabody and Sherman. I don't know which one is Sherman and which one is Peabody, but... Uh... Uh, we, we get to go in the Wayback Machine with our special guests all the time. Uh, and I, I am so excited. Uh, I will also mention, occasionally he will pop in during the podcast when he has bright ideas, instructions, or anything. Mr. David Yaz, the entrepreneur of the Boston Podcast Network, of which we are appearing now. He's the top man. We welcome you, Mr. Yaz. How are you today? Thank you, Josh. Just splendid. Just happy to be here. You know, I um, there's a lot of Beatle books that come out, Professor, and I yeah. read... I read a predominant amount of them, as do you. Some of them I really get into, some not so much. I will tell you, the guest we have today is the author of a book that I absolutely loved from the first page to the last page. I read it in about two and a half days, which is a feat for me, uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I have it in my hands right now. It's a fantastic book. It is called My Ticket to Ride on Gray and Company Publishers. You can find this fantastic book wherever fine books are sold at Amazon, Janice-Mitchell.com. And it's a true story. Uh, A young girl living a rough childhood runs away to find peace, tranquility, and the Beatles in, uh, in London. And she did it at the age of 16 along with a friend, and she turned the country upside down. Professor, I was at a party last night with Mr. David Bieber of the David Bieber Archives, who grew up in Cleveland. He's a few years older than me, and uh, he remembers the story. It was all over the news, and he uh, was so excited that I would be, we would be speaking to the author today. We welcome Janice Mitchell. A pleasure, Janice. How are you? Real well. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. It It is our pleasure. What a great book. I emailed you and told you how much I enjoyed it from the start to finish. A fantastic read. And I was connected from the very first page. Uh, we had some parallel lines going in our childhood, but we found peace and refuge in the Beatles. And I would never, I don't know about you, Professor, but I would never at the age of 16 even consider, you know, <laughs> by finding a passport. Uh, buying a plane ticket and trying to escape the world that she was living in. And uh, man, Janice, I was, uh, I love the book. So congratulations. Thank you. And, and uh, what brought you to writing this? Cause you know, this was a long time ago and you finally got down to writing a book and you are a great writer. What brought you to that point? Thank you so much. Well, back when it happened and I came home and I was instructed to never speak of it again. Um, so I just, you know, get on with your life and forget about it. That's how everybody felt. The court, relatives, nuns, church, like everybody, they were down on, on everything about it. So I just said, well, and plus a lot of things happened after that. And I decided to just move forward, which is what I did. Put it behind me, even though I treasured um, remembering very wonderful moments from that trip that, you know, I couldn't really talk about. However, in 2016, on the radio, there was Paul McCartney singing. He was bringing his one-on-one tour to Cleveland. And as soon as I heard him singing, something struck me the same way I was struck the very first moment that I heard, I want to hold your hand. It was electric. And it just, you know, like I just said, oh my gosh, wait a minute. Everybody from back then is dead or gone. I don't have to worry about, you know, a juvenile court coming after me or disappointing (laughs) relatives. I can now talk about my story, and I really want to, because I know it was the greatest adventure of my life. So that's when I started to write. Well, it it is an adventure. I don't want to give away the ending. People really need to read the book. And uh, 
you know, you had a tough childhood, you know, you, when you, when you write a book, sometimes most people will dedicate it to their mom and dad. Uh, you, you dedicated it to your great aunt and uncle, your parents were, um, you know, troubled on their own. And uh, you can tell, I was reading the book and the, you put a picture of yourself up in second grade and you can look in your face and you see, you know, an unhappy child. That's what I took from it. Yes. I look at that picture and I just feel horrible for that child. You know, brave, trying to do the best she can, but incredibly burdened and very sad. And that's, that's exactly what the picture shows. So you were, you were absolutely right on. Chachi, um, I, you may have uh, known this, uh, but I think uh, over time, you may have gotten to know that for well over a decade, my uh, wife and I, in addition to raising children of our own, were also foster parents. And we would have children in, sort of in transition to if they were going to be adopted or placements, uh, different from a Genesis situation where she was placed with relatives, which is sort of one of the first go-to things, especially at that time. And so the early chapters of the book really resonated with me because I would see that look in the, in the faces of the children that, we, um, that, that were placed with us uh, for a time. And I couldn't help but think that in line or in comparison to many other narratives like this, Chachi, that we've read and folks that we've interviewed um, who are part of the, the Beatle universe, you really get the most sense, I think, through Janice's narrative that uh, there was a salvation offered in the Beatles that was similar and different from the salvation that was kind of being uh, drummed in, into her head at the Catholic education and the Catholic school. But in a lot of ways, you know, they were, they were spiritual beings at the same time. And when you mentioned about Janice running away, I was always struck by um, the line early on where she claimed in her writing that she wasn't running away, she was running towards something. And I think that that sort of change in direction even the word direction not not going away i'm going towards something really makes all the difference in the world that this was really uh, a goal of hers and so i couldn't help but also think that this narrative is is nicely laid over i kept on thinking of the wizard of oz and and cleveland uh was was her kansas and london was oz and uh but then she got to actually talk about it again later on when she came back and no one really believes Dorothy, but we get to believe Janice, you know, when she gives us this narrative. And it's, it's, a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful trip in that way. You know, discovery inside, discovery outside, important characters along the way. It's such a great tale, really is. Thank you. Congratulations, Janice. And, you know, we've interviewed many authors on this show. And I think, and Professor, you probably will agree. The first time I've ever heard that nuns liked the Beatles. Chachi, can I tell you? That's that <laughs> line. I wrote that down. It was amazing. Uh, Janice, Chachi and I had interviewed another woman who sort of came from similar, very strict Catholic school backgrounds in Philadelphia. And the nuns in the schools were completely against it. And so where were these hip nuns in Cleveland coming from as opposed to Philadelphia <laughs> and that they loved the Beatles when, you know, those at home did not. Um, how did that work that the nuns loved the Beatles? I can, I, can you imagine, I can't imagine Chachi, some yes. of the nuns I knew in, in, uh, at Sunday school or catechism uh, with a transistor radio, you know, singing, she loves you. I just couldn't imagine that. How did that work, Janice? Well, I mean, I can't speak for the nuns, but I can say that at that time, <laughs> Uh, we just went through such a horrible November 22nd, 1963, when, you know, our, our beloved Catholic F. Kennedy president was assassinated. And uh, the nuns, of course, totally devastated. You know, in, in my school, Ursuline Academy of the Sacred Heart, Catholic girls' school, there were three pictures on the walls, the Pope, Jesus, and John F. Kennedy. And I think Kennedy's picture was larger than the Pope or Jesus. <laughs> and when the Beatles music came along, it was just so happy that I think it actually lifted up the nuns as well. And I saw when I was doing research for the book, I went to the Ursuline archives to look at the, um, the yearbook from that year. And they had actually quoted Paul McCartney's songs stringing along the tops of the pages in the yearbook. And I was just so amazed to see how much they, they loved and responded to the Beatles songs. Wow. 
Now, Janice, remember that you're, you're, you're being interviewed. You're talking to folks back here in Massachusetts where um, even in <laughs> your basic uh, suburban Irish Catholic home, old school or not, there's probably still a little Kennedy shrine in the corner. And uh, it's, still, <laughs> yeah. it's still very, very present, you know. Um, but I do think it's, um, it's, it's amazing that there was, uh, uh, you know, that type of, of, uh, of, of, of iconography, but somehow uh, the Beatles would have, would have been right part of it. I mean, uh, I mean, if you went back to talk to the nuns when John said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, they may have had a different opinion at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, but you know, uh, you know, uh, Janice, the way you wrote uh, your story and the characters in your story, uh, I it brought me to a point where I actually thought I knew them. You did such a great job of building a picture for us. Oh, thank and you. Yeah, it was really, really fun, fantastic to read, despite, you know, the problems with it, with it but in terms of your childhood, um, you did get to see one of two infamous Beatles shows in Cleveland, uh, and both had kind of uh, circumstances where the kids stormed the stage, you stood in line first, you and your friend Marty, and you scored front row center tickets to see the Beatles in Cleveland in 1964, where just a couple of days later, you were packed, ready to go to London, ready to escape. Marty withdrew her money. You went and got passports and you were bound to leave a couple of days later. But tell us about that show in Cleveland. That was a, must've been an amazing experience. Well, I think that Marty and I were probably the first people that stood outside a building to wait all night to be the first people online to purchase tickets. So um, it was in June, and we had to wait three months before we were actually going to see the Beatles live at the uh, public auditorium on September 15, 1964. This was going to be their first concert. And it was just, I had my front row center tickets, and I'm sitting there. The, the stage is about 10 feet, and... Um, you know, there's the opening acts, which, you know, it's always nice, but come on, where's the Beatles? Look, so that's all we wanted. So we were waiting for it. So they find, they are, finally, we can see them life-size, not like on Ed Sullivan on a little TV or on the, uh, the album covers or the Beatles magazines, but it was them. There they were, Paul, George, John, and Ringo, live, you know, moving playing their music and it was the most overwhelming experience but I as a Catholic Irish girl raised you know with nuns trained you know to never really do anything you know no yelling no screaming or anything like that for me all of a sudden in the middle of the third song all these kids that were there mostly girls just they just broke loose screaming crying waving signs and everything, running down, you know, the aisles, rushing like madness towards the front. Like never, I never see anything like that in my life, of course, who could? And uh, I was so upset about that, that they were ruining this concert that we had worked so hard and waited so long to see. And um, it actually stopped the show, you know, for 10 home. And the police were on the stage, you know, everybody was on the stage and, Somebody took a microphone out of George's hand. You know, it was kind of rough up there. The Beatles were trying to keep playing, but they weren't going to let them. And they were threatening to shut the show down. And, of course, everybody began sobbing even louder, you know, at that thought. And then uh, two of our disc jockeys from KYW came out and said, look, you know, if you kids want the show to go on, I'm going to start counting to three. And by the time I get to one, Everybody better be back in their seat. So everybody scrambles back to their seat. By the time they got to one, you know, we were back on again. But um, I just, uh, I just couldn't, the, the experience was just, was just overwhelming and thrilling. Now, it was um, Beatlemania right there at the beginning. Yeah, so a few questions. Could you hear them? Do you remember what they were wearing? Were you checking out the boots? And, you know, did you take it all in visually? Were you able to hear amongst the screaming? Absolutely not. You can hear a thing. No, you could just hear screaming and you could see their lips moving and them moving, playing their instruments. But I knew every word to every song anyway after listening to them for 
so, so many hours. And they were wearing dark suits and Ringo was up on his drum set, which was like, like a throne almost. It was so beautiful with a, a blue backdrop, you know, so they were really easy to see. And they were, I think their suits were dark and of course their boots, which we call Beetle boots, but I think they were actually known as Chelsea boots. I'm not sure, but that's right. their feet, you know, and just doing what they do. And, um, Every, they were just they just maintained a professional stance up there once they got back to playing, you know. And Paul was the one who really took charge of that conversation. He got the word from George that it was okay to continue playing. And Paul says, "Thank you. I hope that you like our next tune, you know, which was a song on our Capitol Record album or something similar to that." And boom, they were just off to the races again. It was incredible. Wow, David. Well, Chachi, there's um, there seems to be, and the name escapes me now, but it seems as though the the early Beatles' impact on Cleveland has been profound, and it has produced several books. Uh, I forget the man who's written about the Beatles in Cleveland as well, but those concerts really made an impact uh, on the city and on the youth of the city. Uh, and I think uh, uh, Janice's narrative around the time of staying there all night was quite striking. First in line, the police officer took her name. She found him again the next morning. Yes, verifying that she would be first in line. And, um, you know, when she got the tickets in the mail or the letter in the mail saying she had a right to the tickets, it reminded me of uh, uh, Charlie getting his and Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, right? Or really Wonka that he had a golden ticket. That was Genesis' yeah. golden ticket. And I guess the other thing that was amazing is it seemed that the other kind of I don't know whether you would say dangers or or troubling uh, uh, adults in Janice's life were closer to home. And when she was out in the wide world, they seemed to have an amazing ability to negotiate uh, the world out there. And everyone seemed to be rather kindly or in comparison, rather kindly. And I think that, you know, whatever was troubling in Janice's young life just made her very strong. And, and, and confident in a way. And I think that that strength and that confidence makes its way into the writing. You know, uh, we always say that kids grow up so fast these days. Well, you know what? They grew up fast a long time ago, too. Uh, and I loved uh, some of her writing about just being out there, um, learning about the passport by, and Chachi knows this, my oldest daughter is a librarian, so I have great affection for people who love libraries. And Janice, you wouldn't have gotten to where you went unless you went to your library, right? Local library to find out all passports and, and reading up on England. So I think that those types of journeys that you made uh, were just incredible at that age, you know? I mean, I think the Beatles helped, helped a lot of young folks grow up in a, in a positive way, you know? Well, um, in my childhood made, I was... I had to become a survivor in my young childhood because of my parents. And uh, I was able to do it. I mean, I knew how to make my way around the little, my little streets that I lived on, trying to stay safe, really, from my parents, who were pretty abusive, and uh, find ways to eat, you know, get food for me and one of my younger siblings, and just scramble all the time to protect, protect myself. So being able to do that, Really, that was just who I was. And I took that survival mechanism, which I was very good at, into my teenage years. Mm. So when I decided to go to England to live the beautiful Beatle life, where life was wonderful, and that's where the Beatles came from, that's where their music was made, of course, have to be much, much nicer over there. Beatle land, that's what I like. <laughs> Right. So figuring out how to do it really for me was pretty easy because the library was the place I spent a lot of time at. And in those days, of course, there was no computers, no internet, no iPhones, there was no technology whatsoever. You go to the library to find things out. And the libraries were always there to help you. They didn't judge you, they just helped you for whatever you needed. So that's where I went to find out how to get a passport and what you know, get the application, how to fill it out. That was my source. Yeah. I mean, you were you were living the intrepid life of one of your maybe literary heroes like Nancy Drew, and you got to live that out, you know? I mean, I was a little bit worried, but 
I kind of felt deep down that you were going to make it just fine uh, hitchhiking up to Liverpool and make it back in one piece. That was a great, <laughs> great, great story. Great, great part of the book that way. And I thought, you know what? If as a young teenager, she's riding the, the light rail and the rapid rail in Cleveland to various areas, even even going to the Italian section where I've been to before in <laughs> Cleveland, you know, you can do anything, right? <laughs> yeah. well, you know what I was thinking, Professor, as well was, you know, she was wise beyond beyond her years, and uh, it, things must have been very hard because you could sit there and reason, okay, I'm 16. If I wait two more years, I can leave scot-free, and no one can say a word. But things were so bad, I, I, would, I would suggest from what I read, that you had to leave right away, and you... But before you left, you and you, I love this television show. I used to love the Mike Douglas show. I used to watch it all the time, you know, and you made it into a, uh, the great adventure of getting backstage at Mike Douglas. And, you know, unfortunately, we just, you know, obviously Bill Wyman passed away a while back, but you have an incredible story in the book where you find yourself in the Rolling Stones dressing room and Bill Wyman wants to take you away with him. And he, and when you look at it, Professor, he would probably would have got arrested for kidnapping, right? A 16-year-old. <laughs> you uh, know, we, we, we were getting into some dicey territory there, you know, but uh, <laughs> yeah, come on tour with us, you know, and uh, her foot was at the, the, the very edge of the abyss and she withdrew it back for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what would have happened, Janice, if you did decide to go on tour with the Bill Wyman and the Rolling Stones. I don't even want to think about that. Because I, I learned a lot about Bill Wyman in the following years. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> but there was no way I was going to go because that was in June, June 18th. And the big plans were already there, you know, to leave. We already had tickets, passports, and everything. And we were leaving the morning after the Beatles concert. It was all set. Why uh, waste any time? Let's go. And it was so clandestine how you treat, you know, Got your, your luggage and everything and there you are having at 16 years old i can't imagine the wherewithal of you know first of all you have a stopover in new york that would have freaked me out right there and, and you fly along with your friend marty uh with the money in your pocket and um and there you are in london yes there we are that was where my plan i was the planner for everything and she provided the money Okay, so it was a perfect partnership. So my planning only went up to and included arriving in London. And then I had no, no plans after that. But I knew it was all going to work out. And there was that gap, Chachi. There was that gap and that Janice writes about where it kind of hits her. And she is sort of half admitting it to her, to her co-conspirator that this is as far as my plan is taking us. You did have that other part of the plan we're going to work for Brian Epstein, but you, you sort of put that on the shelf where you got there and maybe that plan, even you thought was a little bit harebrained and you didn't quite have a plan to make, put that plan into action, but you, you did have that plan, but that was a little bit more of the, of the extra fantasy, I suppose, you know? Well, that plan was hatched, you know, back home in Cleveland Heights. And I did write Brian a letter, you know, telling him that I could, I could type and I could file, you know, Good skills for a girl, and I figured he was so busy at that time. I had to always try and find work because I always did have little jobs here and there. So that was always part of my plan. But then after we got there, life just became so incredibly wonderful. Doing all the things I really wanted to do, be where there was music all the time. And uh, the kids in Soho and in England, they were very different than kids in America. They had a they were more independent and they were they had more freedom they could make a lot more choices than we could the restrictions that we had were not so much there so this was kind of like my place i loved it i was meant to be there you know and it it, it seemed to be safe there i mean you got uh, mick and, and <laughs> paul and roy if i'm remembering the names correctly and they never tried to take advantage of you. They, they, they always made sure you got home. Sometimes they slept in your hallway, never really asked to come in. So, and of course, there's the whole saga of the police. When the Beatles came to Boston, one of the biggest complaints 
was the fact that the police treated them badly and treated the fans badly. And part of your story, I don't want to get into the ending, but there's a definitive difference between how you were treated by the Bobbies in England as opposed to the Cleveland police. It was just a vast, vastly different situation. It was night and day. I couldn't believe it, really. I mean, the police in in, uh, in London, they were just, they just treated us like, well, this was a lark and it was kind of amusing, but everybody's okay now. So, you know, why worry? And, you know, and they gave us this fantastic breakfast, like, Breakfast for the Beatle girls, you know, we don't always get VIPs here, you know, that's how we were treated. It was like amazing. And then come back here and it's like a criminal. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really crazy. And, you know, Mick, you had a special relationship with Mick and you painted a very nice uh, picture of him. You, you, You seemed to know who he was when I was reading it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. He was respectful. He always took care of you. And uh, and there you are going to all these, you know, clubs, having fun, you know, like a new bohemian. And, you know, I always wondered, why, I wonder why you never actually went to Abbey Road Studios, you know, thinking, you know, I'm going to, you, but you were, you were from the Beatle magazines, the fan magazines. This is the, the clubs they went to. I suppose if they said, well, they recorded EMI Studios, you might have gone there, but you went looking for a needle in a haystack, you know, the Beatles being randomly in a club that you happened to be at. That was the hope, and plus, I was uh, fully absorbed into the whole scene. I was one of them. I was living the life, you know, yeah. and I loved it. I loved everything about it. It was me, and uh, you know, all the music was incredible. And um, one of the clubs, you know, we were told, well, the Rolling Stones were the house band here just two weeks before. Oh, and now the Kinks are the house band, you know. So we were just there while this was all happening. You know, all the music was all the time. Bands, kids. There were so many bands, so much live music, and that's what we did. And that's what I just loved it. So I really wasn't worried about anything else too much, you know, except being there in the scene, in the moment, enjoying my relationship with Mick, who was a sweetheart. He really was. And not not one bad thing ever happened at all. Now... Did he know you were 16? Or that was never discussed? That was never discussed, no. Wow. I don't think it would have mattered because 16-year-olds over there, they were living their own lives. A lot of them didn't even go to school. They just got jobs, you know, and worked. And and do you think you were in love with him? Well, I was certainly enamored of Mick. You know, I think we had a budding relationship, you know, that was just really slowly you know going on and I of course I had no plans of ever coming back here my plan was to stay there forever (laughs) wow unbelievable uh professor Tachi I thought it was kind of funny um when uh Janice is is with these new friends that she's met going from club to club to club and absorbing the scene there (laughs) and uh she says uh, we just don't have a music scene in Cleveland and I'm thinking yes the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame (laughs) but she could say with confidence there in London no we have no music scene in Cleveland Um, and I I think part of the um, uh, maybe the safety net is that you know uh, two uh, young uh, American women traipsing about might have been seen as um, a little bit of a curiosity and if, if they were curious about them, then, then their, their contemporaries there would be curious about them. And there was a sense of maybe even guardianship and protecting them. I mean, a lot of folks in England at the time, a little bit the younger people, but certainly the older people, looked very fondly upon Americans. You know, we had helped them out of the war, for goodness sake, right? And it would take another generation, I think, where a lot of younger uh, Europeans would, would be a little bit more distrustful of, uh, of Americans in terms of, you know, political situations and such. But, um, and then that may have been part of also how they were, they were treated more kindly in a lot of way, you know, the kindly, the kinder and gentler in some ways uh, than, than her experience coming back to the States. Um, I had a question if you still, and maybe it was buried somewhere I didn't realize, do, do you still have the umbrella from Harrods? That umbrella. Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, yeah. I, I was thinking of I was thinking of Rosebud, the sled from from Citizen Kane. That the umbrella is so iconic, you know. Oh, 
I only wish, but you know, as we were treated so horrifically here and were dragged from the airport to the juvenile detention home in Cleveland, which was probably one of the worst horrifying experiences that I ever had. When we were actually bonded out, which I didn't even know what bonded meant. I just knew that it meant I was out. And I was, I was very absorbed into my reunion with my relatives, which was extremely poor experience. And I hadn't even thought about my umbrella. So the umbrella remained inside somewhere in the juvenile detention hall. Probably someone thought, oh yeah, this is nice. I'm keeping it. Of course, it was a gorgeous umbrella and they didn't even think of giving it back to me. So that's where the umbrella, the last place I saw it. Well, you know, um, you talk about Harrods and I had the same type of experience and uh, I don't mean to be bragging or anything, but I went on tour with Tony Bennett for a week in London and we were going to a play in the West End, I think it was. And um, I didn't have shoes. I brought sneakers and he's, hey, judge, let's go to Harrods and I'll buy you some shoes, you know, and he... (laughs) And we were, you know, I felt like I shouldn't take my time. I'll just buy a quick pair of shoes. And I bought the worst, tightest, most uncomfortable pair of shoes. It's like that old Steve Martin bit, cruel shoes. Yeah. And and I remember walking in them uh, and it just killed me. And it's funny, we went to see a play and we both fell asleep halfway through it, uh, despite the shoes. But I still have the shoes today and they mean a lot because you know why? They're from Harrods, <laughs> you know? So I, I get it, Janice, you know? Yeah, I know. I, boy, I wish I had that. I loved it. Wow, what an adventure. And so, you know, Mick takes you to Liverpool finally. You know, you go to Liverpool, you hitchhike there. Yeah. And uh, sleep in the fields one or two nights <laughs> here and there and eating meat pies. They don't sound appetizing to me. I'm not a meat pie guy. Maybe a, maybe a chicken pot pie guy on occasion, but they're great, uh, Chachi. They're great. They're called Cornishes. They're fantastic, crimped around the edges. Yeah, and and you discovered the the greatness of fish and chips. And I would venture a guess that that was where you discovered alcohol, right? Did they say put a little dash in the drink? What was the what? How did you describe it when you a uh, splash? A splash. You you didn't know what splash was. I had no idea. <laughs> It happened in, in one of the clubs with um, two of the other boys, um, Paul and Roy. They were like the cosmopolitan Londoners, and um, they decided that they would offer us Cokes with splashes. And I had thought it was like, oh, um, you made a colorful thing, like something red that you put in a drink. That's what I assumed it was, but I learned quite well that that's not what it was. It was alcohol. Now, Janice, were they were they putting rum in? Were you having a beetle drink without realizing it, a rum and coke? I really, uh, maybe I was. I never knew really what it was. I just knew the effect. <laughs> oh, I love I love the way you and you called Tony at three a.m. You had had several of you had had the, any splash that night and had lost track of them. I'll I'll take it to to uh, to to heart that yes you were having a beetle drink without even realizing it or several of them because what what else would you splash into coke to give you a bit of a kick would be rum it works perfectly well yeah <laughs> uh-huh you're probably right about that i never thought about that but yeah 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 but you know what was cool uh you went to nems it was closed <laughs> but you, but you went to nems you stood out front uh must have been a surreal experience it was, you know, and I was hoping to see Brian Epstein in there. You know, I was thinking, oh, he'll be in there. Maybe he'll come out, you know, and maybe I can ask him for a job then, but a job in London. It was what we had a very short amount of time uh, there, but we made the most of it. Wow. Uh, a fantastic story. We're talking to Janice Mitchell, My Ticket to Ride. Before we wrap up, I have a few more questions. I mean, although we have the luxury of seeing Janice, uh, everyone's listening on the podcast, but I'm holding the cover of her book. She does not look 16, first of all. Uh, she looks older than 16, so I can see how you probably weren't hassled anywhere because no one really realized how old you were. Um, but all this was happening, and it was such a simple time back then, I'm a first-generation Beatle fan, but you're a couple years older than me, Janice. But all the while, the country's going crazy. 
there's newspaper articles there's you know there's no social media you know you don't even have a tv or a radio in your room you haven't listened to a beetle record while you were there cleveland's upside down looking for you and it's all over the country mick jagger apparently makes a comment about it and you know i don't want to give away the end because you got to read this book it's called my ticket to ride uh i i just found that it was it must have been such a shock when they threw all the newspaper articles on the table for you to read. Yeah, at the police station, where the Bobby said, uh, oh, well, we have a pool. The first first officer who finds you is going to get all this money. And I was like, what? what, what? <laughs> <laughs> he says, yes, don't you know that everybody's looking for you? I, said, I didn't know that anybody was looking for me. I had no idea that this was such a huge thing. You know, and uh, he showed me some of the newspapers and I was just I was astounded that anybody wanted us back at all Chachi I I love the way Janice structures it in the book too for for those uh, for our listeners who who eventually can maybe get the book um, you know and this isn't giving away the ending it's giving away the process basically you've got a short chapter that of the newspaper clippings and then a parallel chapter where Janice is hitchhiking with her friend in Liverpool, completely unaware that the other part of the world is all, I would say a Twitter, but before that's using the word before Twitter existed. Um, and it does point out the changes in technology that, that these two worlds could be going on simultaneously. One, not knowing anything about the other you know, uh, hunting and then, you know, alternating back to what's going on in London, then another newspaper clipping and then, back to what's going on in, in London and Liverpool. And I just love the way you do that in the book, Janice, you know, how it's uh, uh, your rhetorical strategy, as we call it, you know, the, the real world newspaper reporting and your own personal reportage and then back to the newspaper reporting. It's, uh, it's really a great back and forth. You do get a sense as a reader, though, that this mystery is about to end and, and they're closing in, <laughs> you know. And so in that sense, it has great energy. The book has great energy, you know, as it goes along. Oh, thank you so much. I agree, Janice. I just love the book. And, you know, you come home and, you know, Toots and Margie, or is it Margie? Is it Margie? Margie. Margie. You know, they tell you that you're dragging the family through the mud. And compared to today, that was good mud. You know, it's like, (laughs) my word. Imagine how simple life was back then. A young girl in a troubled home just wants to get away and and have all that burden off of your shoulders and to go look for the Beatles. And you were treated like a criminal. Crazy. I know. We didn't really do anything wrong. We really didn't. No, you didn't. Now, were you, do you consider yourself the reason why they banned the Beatles in Cleveland? Although they allowed them to come back later, I think, right? Absolutely. (laughs) There's no doubt about it. And I presented the evidence to that. <laughs> oh, and the judge that you had and, and that great lawyer that should have represented you. It's such a, a really a fantastic story. And I just loved it. It's, gonna, it's on my, my top five list of, of all time. I love the book. Oh, and, thank and you. I, I, I was taken by it from the very first page. Now, since we have now the, the luxury of retrospect, I mean, how many phases of attitude changes about that time did you go through uh, compared to back then what is your recollection now and I mean, you know what i'm trying to say what has changed i mean i'm sure you went through a period of hating your parents did that ever change uh what was the progression of emotion through those years if you can understand well that through the following years to the present t- when i wrote the book yes. yeah i um it was rough it was very very rough uh, the things that I couldn't understand, you know, that I always w- wish I could. Like, I think it's the kind of questions that people ask themselves that go through, you know, terrible situations where they have no control over it. And you always ask, well, why? You know, why did my parents act like that? Why did everything happen the way it did? Why did those people not really want me there at their home, even though they had me in their home? Although it was my Uncle Mac that made everything wonderful. You know, and then I had to deal with, I, I had to deal with a lot of, um, you know, a lot of inner struggles. But I have to say that uh, moving to New York City, you know, you can put your whole life behind you, basically. All the bad things can go away. 
And in New York City, you can find you can find you can follow any dreams you want. You can follow multiple dreams, multiple careers, all at the same time. So I didn't do much except I had no connection to um, to my family. And uh, it was 9/11 came along, and I was I'm a 9/11 World Trade Center survivor. And I decided after a couple of years to come back to Cleveland, where all the ghosts were surrounding me in Cleveland. And it was there, here rather, when it came to my conclusion that I had to write this book, which meant I had to face everything. I had to face everybody from the past. And I had to, I had to um, think about them and really dig deep into why everything happened so long ago. You know, when I was a child, now I had to really deal with it. So that was the hard part. But the good part of writing the book, because I finally had to face it. I couldn't run away anymore. You know, I was not in New York anymore. I was now back home where it all happened, you know. So I changed a lot. I learned to be the only way you can really move forward is you have to forgive those people from the past. You really have to. You have to look at them and think, well, I don't really know what you were going through at that time. Um, except I did, I was able to do a lot of research and find out what my parents, what their lives were like. And once I learned about that, I just could start forgiving. Once you start forgiving, you can really start, you know, loving again and moving on. So it's been a, re a, a really uh, wonderful experience for me. Like, I'm a, I can honestly say I'm a different person from writing this book. Honestly, it's the truth. And I'm grateful. Writing is a very powerful tool for that, uh, Janice and, and Chachi. I, it's, I admire that uh, greatly. I think people sort of don't realize um, the, the power that that writing has, you know, to to both discover yourself, rediscover yourself. And, and I hate the term, but I know it's really maybe overused that um, you, you, you did through the writing find some sense of closure uh is, is would that be accurate to say oh absolutely yeah. yes i did but yes, opening but opening many things at the same time right <laughs> uh, closing one chapter but being able to open many other things it in your writing and the way you're talking about it almost makes it feel like makes it sound like that you that you can almost breathe normally <laughs> now in a lot of ways right your writing gives you breath that you know you you said it exactly the right way it's true but really, uh, Janice, do you dread doing these interviews because you have to talk about it? Or are you uh, gone, you settled everything and you're free to talk about it? And you, you don't we're not opening up old wounds. No, I don't dread it at all. I mean, this is you know part of being free. You know that you can talk about your past. You can talk about the things that you've done. You can talk about you know like the greatest adventure of my life. I can talk about that now. I don't have to worry about how it's going to affect anybody. Um, I love, I really enjoy these interviews because, you know, I don't mind because I've settled within myself that this is what I did. This is who I am. And yeah. I am this way. I, you know, and I, I'm happy and I couldn't change anything from the past. Well, so I will, I will and, and good for you, but I, I will say, you know, trauma comes in all forms and, in all way, different ways. And you certainly went through a lot of trauma as a child. And, you know, I have as well. Um, and I, I got to a point where I look back and I go, well, you know, if it didn't happen, I wouldn't have met, you know, Ringo, Paul and, and George on several occasions. I wouldn't have a radio show for 40 years now in Boston. Yeah. I, I could have turned out to be someone completely different. So things happen for a reason. And I came out on the good side of it. And I'm happy to say that what I see, it's been the same for you, Janice. So congratulations. Well, thank you. Well, the one thing that did meet the Beatles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I did. I started in 81, so I missed on John. But as, as the professor will uh, back me up, I've interviewed Ringo many times, Paul several times, I've been in a dinner situation with Paul. And I interviewed George. So who was your favorite Beatle? That's the one thing I don't think you mentioned in your book. No, I didn't mention it, that George was my favorite Beatle. Me too, Professor. 
Yeah. Ah, there we go. There we go. Chachi, don't forget that uh, who is mentioned in uh, in Janice's book is Pete Best. And I know you've met, you've met, I've met Pete, you've met Pete, you've interviewed him many, many times as well. Yes. And he's an important part of the story. You know, um, in, in reading Janice's book, when I talk to my students, when we get to 1967 and Sergeant Pepper and the, the fantastic song on Sergeant Pepper, She's Leaving Home, and the story, of course, of Melanie Coe. And now I get to say, you know, it didn't start then. You know, She's Leaving Home is also Janice. That song is hers, too, you know, prior to 67. And then and then many young people heard that and then took it as a call to action. My, my cousin, who was a first-generation Beatles fan, she ran away with what I heard as a kid, my uncle saying those damn hippies and they had to go track her down in Kentucky all the way from Connecticut and, you know, living in a commune somewhere. And, um, and they blamed the, they blamed uh, the song on Sergeant Pepper. So um, it's interesting though, that uh, you can blame the song, but that meant that a certain swath of the generation wasn't listening to the song, you know, and, and, and to realize everything that goes on there about the parents' regret and what they didn't understand that this young girl just wanted to have fun, right? Fun was one thing they, they, they never gave her. And I think that Janice's book is a great sort of precursor to that, you know? Um, so I think Paul should know about it. <laughs> I do. He, and that I'm, song. I'm, uh, he should, uh, you well, know. <laughs> I'm going to try to. How close I came to actually meeting Paul back there because you know, the Beatles had been tapped to try and help find us. They were enlisted in the search. And I didn't know this until doing research for more articles a few years ago while I was writing my book. And I read, found an article in London, two articles in London newspapers, about how Brian Epstein contacted the embassy and said that Paul McCartney is on standby to come and say hello and goodbye to us. But the embassy said, no. You know, you know, Janice, that would have made other teenage girls want to run away and meet the Beatles. You'd be opening <laughs> up a can of worms. I mean, they could have done it under the darkness of you know, the night, getting him in and out. It didn't have yeah. to be publicized. Yeah. Uh, but shame on the U.S. Embassy. I mean, once the United States became involved, things turned bad for you. You know, I know. It, it's crazy. Here I am, I'm begging this man. Please, you know everybody. Can you at least make a phone call? Yeah. I mean, after everything we've been through, no, no, not at all. So that's how close I came. I will tell you, I Professor, I think there's a movie in this book. I think yeah. it's great, a great movie. Uh, yeah. There's so many different legs in this film. There's fun, there's joy, there's pain, there's family and what the bad part of family let me ask you some quick questions before we go did you ever speak to marty again is she still with us uh did your 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 friend who you went to london with i know she was angry at you for a long time how did that play out it didn't play out well at all because and i think it had to do with the money you know and also the horrible influence of me so her family uh, got her out and away from cleveland and I was able to speak to her one time in 1968. Somehow I had her phone number. And I was thrilled, thinking, oh, my gosh, we're going to relive everything. It's going to be joyous and fun, and we'll be laughing about everything. And she said, you know what? Don't ever call me again, because I have a new life now. I'm married. But I'm glad she got married. That's what she wanted. She said, my husband and his family, they don't know anything about this. And I, I teach Sunday school, and they don't know anything about it. And I don't want anything to know about it. And that just broke my heart. That's, that's but I terrible. It. That's terrible. You guys did nothing wrong. I mean, it's uh, you, okay, you spent her money, but come on. You know, it's only money, and you have memories that you will never replace. Okay, so you never... You never saw Mick again? Do you still have the phone number, the piece of paper? Did you keep all that stuff? Oh, you know, how I wish I still had that piece of paper. And I only spoke to him just the one time when I could, you know, and he was wanting, they were wanting me to come back and I was hoping to come back. But so many things happened after that, that my life just, you know, became more chaotic, but in different ways. So, yeah, no. yeah. Well, Janice Mitchell, 
I must congratulate you on a book that that I love. I think I can speak for the professor as well. It's called My Ticket to Ride, a true story from 1964, how I ran away to England to meet the Beatles, got rock and roll banned in Cleveland. <laughs> and look at you. You went on to be a award-winning private, uh, not a private, but an award-winning investigator, federal investigator. Yeah. You know, I mean, what a different uh, trajectory your life was. <laughs> and, and look at you. And then you moved back to Cleveland. So it was like full circle for you. Full circle. Yeah. Professor, any last thoughts uh, for the Janice Mitchell? Well, just just a a joy to read and a a pleasure to have her on, Chachi. And um, uh, really another great companion piece that uh, uh, people of that time writing about the Beatles, of course, are are giving us an insight to themselves, you know, and you learn more directly from these personal narratives about what was it like growing up Catholic in, in the Cleveland suburbs in that time, because the Beatles drew that out, your relationship to the Catholic Church, to the nuns, to education, to your family, and it put everything under greater a greater magnified focus, and, and any writing that does that is, is a pleasure to read. Janice, it really was a pleasure. Thank you. God bless you. Take care of yourself. I think we're going to, what I'm going to do is have Janice back for another interview in the next couple of weeks for the radio show because i'd like to speak to her uh one-on-one on that and uh and again you really made my week with this book so thank you very much it's called my ticket to ride janice-mitchell.com on amazon and hopefully you'll stop making the rounds in those beetle conventions and book <laughs> signings and uh, we'd love to have you in boston sometime um, maybe we can get you over to to meet the professor's beetles class It's always a lot of fun. And uh, thank you for being our guest on Get Back to the Beatles. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a thrill to speak to you. Janice Mitchell, my ticket to ride. That does it for another edition of Get Back to the Beatles. It's me, Chachi, your host. You can hear my show, Breakfast with the Beatles in Boston, Maine, and uh, New Hampshire. Uh, Breakfast with the Beatles, Chachi.com. And uh, Professor Gallant, uh, until next time, my friend. Until next time, Chachi. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Stay well, everybody. Peace and love. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.